0: Stand and say, Lord, you and you alone are our focus today. Sing this great old hymn with us.
1: King of heaven, by king
2: Uh, You may be seated. Uh, I think my wife will be disappointed. That's one of her favorite hymns. But she's in the nursery today. Y'all know how that is to miss out on something. Am I on, guys? I don't think I'm on. Testing one. Testing, okay. All right. Again, I wake up sometimes and I feel like I've slept underwater. Y'all know how that feels? Fluid in your ears. It's good to have you here today. Uh, It's a blessing uh, to come together and worship the Lord. And uh, there is a special lady. I don't know. Miss Alice Hughes, did you come today? There. Where is she? There she is. She is 99 today. Woo! Amen. 99. That's a long time to live, isn't it? It is. There is... Uh, This weekend being Memorial Day, you will find in your pew some memorial offering envelopes. And what that does is help us with bereavement meals when someone dies. We provide a meal for their family in the fellowship hall. Well, we've had nine since January. And so the cost, we don't obviously charge, so the church helps with that. If you'd like to be generous at this point uh, today... Uh, you could take one of those envelopes, and we would greatly appreciate help uh, with memorial meals. This is also Memorial Day, and on this day we honor the men and women who died while serving in the U.S. military. If you think about it, its origins go all the way back to the Civil War, at which time it was called anybody know Decoration Day, and it became an official federal holiday in seventeen in nineteen seventy one. So with it today, we commemorate American military personnel who died in all wars. But for me personally, this day causes me to reflect on a dual citizenship that we have. We are and should be uh, patriotic. We should be uh, grateful to be citizens of the United States of America. But most importantly, if you're saved today, you're citizens of heaven. Philippians 3.20 reminds us, Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it is obvious today that this is not the America that our loved ones gave their lives for. And it has to break our hearts in many, many ways. You hear so much said negatively about military, and many, many people say, Uh, in leadership in Washington, that there are no heroes. They don't feel like the men and women who gave their lives were heroes for freedom. I disagree, right? So today I'm gonna do something unique and unusual for me. I'm gonna deal with some of these controversial issues that are that are pressing upon us. Why would I talk about critical race theory and intersectionality and social justice? Because our church is going to face it. We already have. So I'm going to deal with those things today, best I know how. I'm a preacher. I'm not a uh, a political science guy like my son. The definitions you see on the overhead today are and have been provided by my son Timothy, who's a political science major. There's so many ins and outs and nuances to critical race. I'm going to do my best, okay? I know we've got children in here too. There was no children's church today, all right? So uh, maybe they'll learn something about critical race theory. I don't know. But praise God for you being here today, and we do this only because I'm a shepherd to my people, and the church needs to know how to respond. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you're so good to us. Lord, we are thankful for those who gave their lives for our freedom. And Lord, I know in the grand scheme of things, freedom in Christ is what's most important. We know that, Lord, But we're also grateful and thankful that we still have many freedoms in our country. And, Father, we pray that they'll be preserved, that we will learn to look upon people as souls and hearts that are separated from you if they're not saved. And that all of us, in fact, only came from one race, Adam and Eve, and all of us need Jesus. We need the gospel Thank you for the scriptures that remind us that the gospel has broken down every dividing wall, whether it be geographical or racial or economic, whatever that may be. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray this prayer, the name of Jesus, the name above every name. Amen.
0: Amen. Amen. Well, we try not to belabor the point, but let me just say real quickly This little white card, the connection card, is very important. If you're a first or second time guest, we would love to know that you're worshiping with us today. So please fill that out and put that in the offering plate at the end of the service. And then also um, what Brother Phillips said about the memorial meal, those envelopes are available to you, and those can be put in the offering plate at the end of the service as well. And that'll be a big blessing to so many families for the rest of the year. We thank you for that. Let's... um, Uh, Let's sing this next uh, song, a couple of songs, really. You Never Let Go and uh, uh, He Will Hold Me Fast reminds us that, yes, we are thankful for a great nation. We are thankful for men and women who serve, but we trust in the Lord. Amen.
1: Amen. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Your perfect love is casting out fear, and even Even though though I'm caught caught in the middle of the storms of this life, I won't turn back. shall I be? oh no you never let go through the calm and through the storm oh no you never let go in every high and every low oh no you never let go Lord you never let go of me and I can see a light that is coming for the heart His troubles, but until that day comes, we we'll live to know you here on the earth. And I will fear no evil, for my God is with me. And if my God is with me, whom then shall I? Until that day comes.
0: old hymn is be still my soul the Lord is on your side gives you great comfort doesn't it amen
1: promises shall last, bought by Him at such a cost. He will hold me Sack.
0: Join me in standing as we read God's Word. This is actually the first part of the pastor's sermon today. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled.
1: song. Though darkness fills the night, it cannot hide the light. Who shall I fear? You crush the enemy. Underneath my feet, you are my sword and I fear I know I know who goes before me I know who stands me Victory Whom shall I? Whom shall I fear? Oh, whom shall I fear? With conviction singing. I know who goes before me. I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always To the Lord, I know who goes before me, I know who stands behind. The God of angel armies is always by my side, the one who reigns forever, he is a friend of mine. always by my side
0: and we would do good to remember that god who is above all amen we will remember sing it out we will remember
1: we will of your hands. We will stop and give you praise for great is thy faithfulness. Sing that again. We will remember. We We will will remember. sustainer, deliverer, our comfort, our joy Throughout the ages, you've been our shelter Our peace in the midst of the storm With signs and wonders, you've shown your power precious blood you've shown us your grace you've been our helper times are difficult when we walk through life's darkest valleys we will look back at all you have done
0: Thing of all to remember the best thing of all i still remember
1: the day you saved me the day i heard you call out my name you said you love me would never leave
0: In this chorus, great is thy faithfulness, great is thy.
2: Peter chapter 3. Let me set the context before we begin. Listen to the word of the Lord. 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ. Some translations will say, sanctify Christ. evil. Peter focuses on the theme, 1 Peter, of hope in the midst of suffering. Unbelievers cannot accept this kind of paradox that we would have joy and we would continue on with hope even in the midst of suffering and or persecution. The actual resurrection of Jesus from the dead is where we get our hope. Chapter 1, verse 3. It's the living hope that we have in Christ Jesus the Lord. But ultimately, the reason Peter would say what he says in verse 13 is because of what is said at the end of chapter 2. Just listen. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth... and the inspiration for how we respond to our world when we may receive persecution. When you may suffer for the cause of Christ because of what you actually believe. Now, back in June of nineteen uh, of 2015, something happened that certainly caused the church to take a step backwards and, and uh, to actually have to be challenged in areas. And if you were a member... In June 20, on June 26th of 2015, the Constitution of the United States guarantees a right to same-sex marriage in all 50 states. And I remember thinking about, what will the church do? How will we live faithfully to the glory of God when that's actually what our Constitution grants people? Well, my response is we have to stand firm on the truth of the Word of God. God's word is absolutely crystal clear in this regard. Marriage is the design of our God in creation. It is God's design. So it is made for one man and for woman. Genesis 2, 24. He made them male. Notice, he made them male and female. What our country did was to buy into the idea that marriage is a right to express love. This is not what marriage is. Now certainly, we express love within the confines of marriage. However, this is not an issue of love. It's an issue of Almighty God's design for marriage. It is not about expressing love or constitutionality. It's about the design of marriage that begins with God. So, marriage, the way God designed it, is affirmed in both the Old and the New Testaments. So, in contrast to this design, let's be clear that homosexuality runs totally contrary to God's design. It runs contrary to what God teaches about marriage and what God teaches about sexuality. Homosexuality would not be acceptable in either light. God has given us in marriage a universal standard. And homosexuality violates that God-given standard. There are many intelligent people in our world who argue the acceptability of homosexuality. But this is an impossible task given God's revelation on the matter. In other words, you have to deny the authoritative word of God to accept homosexuality. You must, right? You have to deny it. Homosexuality is only acceptable if the God of the Bible is dethroned. Right? So we stand firm on the truth of God's word even though we are deeply opposed by the world that we live in. At this point, when it comes to marriage between a man and a woman, compromise is no option for the church. If this was your opinion, you could argue for compromise. But we are not allowed to compromise the written, revealed word of God's truth. So the world cannot redefine marriage any more than they can redefine gravity. You can't. The world will be loud... In their protest toward us. But what should be our response? Shame people? Uh, What does the text say? There's a way that godly people should respond. And our response is based upon how Jesus Christ actually suffered for us. We will be called small minded. You will be called antiquated and out of date. But it will get worse. Folks, I have to tell you this. We need to strengthen and equip our children. We need to equip them. This culture uh, fuels children's understanding of reality today, and that's what they want to do. Think about this. Their goal will be to get your children to lay aside all truth and and become part of their world system. You're going to be slandered. You're going to be called bigots, and young people, it's going to get worse, and you've got to be willing to take a stand on the truth, on the truth of the Word of God, your Beliefs and judgments will be considered hate speech. That's what's going to happen. And we can't disagree anymore without it becoming a war on someone's freedom. And we should not have been surprised by the court ruling in 2015. Yet, I'm as confident as I I have ever been in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Y'all know Jesus has the goods to get this done. The Bible says he has all authority. All, that means all, right? Nothing short of all authority God, the Lord Jesus Christ, has. So at this point, religious liberty becomes more important than ever when it comes to the belief and practice of the local church and Christian institutions. Today, the church must confront newer things, such as H.R. 5 and the Equality Act, which is a backdoor movement to get into the church, So that it shuts this preacher's mouth about preaching the truth. Uh, You've got to read about these kinds of things, and I'm kind of like you at times. How much more are we going to hear? How much more do we have to read? But today the church must also face critical race theory. Social justice. And this is with a capital S small, a capital S and capital J, social justice and intersectionality. So Let's take a little time, and on the board here, if you start waving the white flag, I'm going to put the brakes on and go right to the Bible text, okay? But if you can endure for a little while to hear things that are probably foreign to you, it's very good for you to hear this, okay? So we're going to run some definitions on the board, and as we do, I want you to listen to me as I try to explain it and give you some examples all the way up to Springfield, Missouri, Where it's just happened recently, okay? All right. So, a critical theory is a product of a long line of philosophical ideas. But they have a shared foundation. And that is they deny and reject the Bible. And they exalt human autonomy. What's important is not what God says. It's how humans feel, right? And that's how it is exalted. Now, if you remember, we we hear a lot about... Critical race theory is nothing but Marxism, right? And that would be accurate, okay? So we've got to start and understand what Karl Marx actually believed. He believed that the primary characteristics of in industrial society was this imbalance of power between capitalists and workers. So what's the solution? To him, it was revolution. So the workers would eventually gain consciousness of their plight They would seize the means of production. They would overthrow the masters or the capitalist class. And they would usher in a new socialist society. Now in the 20th century, we've got some examples of this Marxist-style revolution. And every single one of them ended in disaster. Every single one of them. Socialist governments in the Soviet Union, y'all remember this, China, Cambodia, Cuba, racked up a body count of 100 million. their own people. That was the result of Marxism. It unleashed, read the stories, man's darkest brutalities. So by the mid 1960s Marxist intellectuals saw, well it failed over there but we're West Coast scholars so let's just keep this alive. Let's keep it alive in some kind of manner, some kind of form. We know we can't make it look exactly like it did over there but let's change it around a little bit. So they certainly knew that the workers' revolutions would not work in the Western world, meaning Europe and the U.S. Why? Because there was such a large middle class. And rapidly, there were improving standards of living for all people. Most Americans believed in the American dream. Right? Did they not? So you could transcend your origins, no matter what uh, ethno-class you were from, you you could transcend that by education, hard work, and good citizenship, okay? So, rather than abandon that leftist political project, Marxist scholars in the West simply adapted their revolution theory to the social and racial unrest of the 1960s. So they simply substituted race for class, whereas Marx looked at class structures, they began to look at race structure. And the goal in the 60s was to bring this full force into the American people. But something happened. The Civil Rights Movement sought instead for the fulfillment of the American promise of freedom and equality under the law. So Americans preferred the idea of improving their own country rather than overthrowing it. That was what they did. So the vision of Martin Luther King Jr., I want to remind you, that's not the vision of CRT. They don't mention Martin Luther King Jr., they don't agree with what Martin Luther King Jr. actually fought for. So the vision of Martin Luther King Jr. and the restoration of law and order promised by Nixon in 1968 defined the post-1960s in their American political consensus that, hey, we have passed laws about how to treat people with respect. We, we've dealt with the equality thing. And so it died out once again. That was the critical race theory. But they don't die easy. Right, So the radical left has proven resilient and enduring. And that's where critical race theory comes in. It first started as a legal precedent, critical theory, and then it moved over into the political area. And so critical race theory is really an academic discipline. And it was formulated in the 1990s. It was built around the intellectual framework of identity-based Marxism. It's exactly what it is. So for years, it was relegated to universities. Obscure academic journals that none of us probably would have ever thought about picking up. But over the past decade, it has increasingly become the default ideology in our public institutions. It's been injected into government agencies, public school systems, teacher training programs, corporate human resource departments, some of you know what I mean in the form of diversity training programs, human resource modules, public policy frameworks, and school curricula. There's a series of euphemisms they deploy to its supporters to describe critical race theory, including equity, social justice, diversity, and inclusion, and culturally responsive teaching. They're masters of language construction. Or might I say they're masters of deconstructing the language you know of, right? Their definition of these words would not be yours. For instance, the word equality, the principle proclaimed in the Declaration of Independence, right? Defined in the Civil War, codified into law with the 14th and 15th Amendments, uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 all of that is explicitly rejected by critical race theorists. To them, equality represents mere non-discrimination and provides a camouflage for white supremacy, patriarchy and oppression. In contrast to equality, equity as defined and promoted by critical race theorists is reformulated Marxism. Give me a couple examples. Cheryl Harris, law professor and critical race theorist at UCLA proposed this, suspend private property rights for all whites. Seize land and wealth and redistribute them along racial lines. That's their definition of equity, right? The Boston University of Critical Race Theory Group proposed the creation of a new federal department of anti-racism. This department would be independent of and unaccountable to the elected branches of government and would have the power to nullify and veto or abolish any law at any level of government and curtail the speech of political leaders and others who are deemed insufficiently anti-racist. They say in order to truly be anti-racist you also have to be truly anti-capitalist. In other words, identity is the means and Marxism is the end. Equity-based government Form of government would mean the end of private property, but also individual rights, equality under the law, federalism, and freedom of speech. These will be replaced by race-based redistribution of wealth, group-based rights, active discrimination, and omnipotent bureaucratic authority. you not give me 25 cents, I'll say that one again. No, I'm kidding. So critical race theory prescribes a revolutionary program that would overturn the principles of the Declaration of Independence and destroy the remaining structure of our Constitution. Pretty serious, right? Well, how does it work? How is it it infiltrating? Well, last year the FBI was holding workshops on intersectionality theory. The Department of Homeland Security was telling white employees they were committing micro-inequities and had been socialized into oppressor roles. The Treasury Department held a training session telling staff members that virtually all white people contribute to racism and that they must convert everyone in the federal government to the ideology of anti racism. The Sandia National Laboratories, which designs America's nuclear arsenal, this will make you happy, sent white male executives to a three day re education camp where they were told that white male culture was analogous to the KKK white supremacist and mass killings the executives were then forced to renounce their white privilege and write letters of apology to fictitious women and people of color in California an elementary school forced first graders to reconstruct, now check this out first graders, to reconstruct their racial and sexual identities and rank themselves according to their own power and privilege in Springfield Missouri just come home A middle school forced teachers to locate themselves on an oppression matrix based on the idea that straight white English speaking Christian males, that'd be me, many of you, are members of the oppressor class and must atone for their privilege and convert white, covert white supremacy. You understand that the critical race theorist filters almost everything through the lens of postmodernism. And that comes from naturalism. And when you, are, when you are a naturalist, you do not believe that God exists, nor did he create the world. No, no wonder that we don't care about humanity. No wonder we've killed 60 million babies in the womb. When you don't believe that God gives identity and creates us and in the design, being made in the image of God, then Katie barred the door. This is what society is actually made up of. So... It's a broad ideology that is principally concerned with doing what? Liberating subordinate groups from hegemonic hegemony, which is predominance by one group within a society, and they see that dominance looking at at whites. Now, is there some truth of dominance and the way people act and racism? Well, absolutely. But not as a filter to look at everybody in the world, nor as the real solving problem of the issue we have in the world. So they would see this predominant one group within society with the ability to dominate other groups, to dictate norms and values. Please remember that the foundational presupposition for postmodernists is that objective knowledge is impossible. Now get this, these theorists do not believe in truth. And yet they're claiming to give you the number one truth for all of mankind. They figured this thing out. It's called critical race theory. But yet they say they don't believe truth. Right? That's what they're saying. So get this. Now they're claiming that this critical theory is what is foundational for all that we know about our society. So social justice scholars claim to have the objectively true statement about the organizing principle of society. And again, their basic belief is that society is structured by invisible identity systems. And they are in place in order to preserve their own power. So every conversation that you would ever come into is a power game. And this is how we know who we are and what we know. It can only be uncovered by language. So scholarship for social justice will consistently read, we read things that they hate, patriarchy. They don't like anything to do with that. They use terms like white supremacy or whiteness or white fragility. They throw these statements out there. You know uh, imperialism? Do you all know what cis normality is? They're 100% against that. And what is that? Well, that's when a person's gender identity matches the sex they were assigned at birth. That sounds like the Bible. Right? Male female. They're against cis-normality. They're against heteronormative, which is a worldview that promotes heterosexuality as the normal or preferred sexual orientation. Which, (laughs) that's the way the Bible tells it. What about ableism? They're against that. They think that it's discriminant if you are an able-bodied person. If you're able to do certain things, then you are discriminated against. Y'all see where this goes? It affects the entire way we think of things. How about fat phobia? That's literally one of them. Yes, it is. So all of this structuring of society, in their opinion, affects everything. The goal is to dismantle all this stuff. Social justice is what you get when you hold a postmodern epistemology and political principles to be objective, irrefutable realities, even though they say you can't know truth. That's what they say. So, social justice is a philosophical and it is a political movement. Now, isn't social justice a nice word? Real nice, isn't it? Well, folks, let's be honest. There's a difference between social justice, small letters, and social justice movement that is in this world. Please remember this. They're not trying to produce a just world, okay? It's not a system that we can use to create a just world. It's a very bad philosophical uh, principle and it produces very, very bad politics. We know that the idea of social justice is seen throughout Scripture when you see it correctly. Do you all remember when Cain killed Abel? The Bible tells us that Abel's blood still cries out from the ground. That's definitely social justice, right? How about throughout the Scripture when the believers are told to care for the needs of the poor? Yes, we get that from Scripture. The woe articles against Israel were because of social injustice, but not social justice movement in our world. There's a major difference. You see how Christians can jump on the bandwagon. We can say, oh, yes, social justice. How can we be a Christian and not be concerned about that? It's not the same. It's not the same, okay? So there are many Christians who jump on the uppercase social justice movement bandwagon thinking that this is the way to accomplish a lower-case social justice in the world that is simply wrong, wrong-headed. Churches never questioned whether we should fight for social justice, and when we fail to, the Bible says we need to repent. Right? I call social justice being against abortion, because that's called murder, right? So the church of Believing God if we don't stand up for things like that. But here is a new theory that's come along, and the church cannot think that it's a tool to help us with our thinking. So the Proposition 9 given on the SBC floor two years ago was wrong-headed. When they said to use critical race theory, and I got blasted by several of my church members as soon as that happened. Preacher, what do you think about that? What's going on in our convention? And And we should be concerned about that. Uh, Let it be said that one of the presidential candidates that's running this year will make a resolution immediately to turn that over. And not have. What they taught was that we can at least use critical race theory as a tool for analysis. Wrong. You can't. Because the premise behind it is wrong-headed. And it doesn't line up with the word of God. So... In social justice arena, you must stop and define terms. And what do you mean by racism? What do you mean by injustice? What do you mean by oppressed groups? So at every turn, you'll find that their definition is very different from a biblical worldview. Who doesn't think the church ought to fight against racism? But this theory is poisonous to the church. And we might say, well, why don't we just eat the the meat and spit out the bones of critical race theory? Because the meat is poisonous too. That's why you cannot do this. So, please hear me. Critical theory and social justice is a lens which they see and interpret all aspects of reality, whether it's race, gender, ethnicity, economics, politics, and physical disability. UCLA School of Public Affairs defines critical race theory as follows. You can look it up. Critical race theory recognizes that racism is ingrained in the fabric and system of the American society. The individual racist need not exist to note that institutional racism is pervasive and dominant. In other words, whether you've never had a racist thought in your head, if you're white, you're a racist. You need not have ever thought about it any time in your life. Yet, because you are part of that oppressor group, you are deemed a racist. So the individual racist need not exist. They don't really care if you are individually a racist. Even if there has never been a racist thought in your mind, if you are white, you are racist because of the group that you belong to, which is racist, in their opinion. So, some of you are thinking, well, I don't think that way. Well, you just don't know the truth behind it, right? That's what they would say to you. You're part of a group that thinks that way and dominates society. So, the key point in how you can have people who make billions and billions of dollars in the NBA and still say they're of the oppressed is just that belief all white people are oppressors and they're oppressed even if they make billions of dollars a year now you're thinking about watching the media and hearing what we're hearing when you hear people talk about structures and layers and intersectionality and how this happens and this happens folks, it's everywhere in our country now you better get ready for it it's everywhere and Ozark, hear me Please do not even think about entertaining teaching critical race theory in our schools. We will start a school at First Baptist Ozark if it happens. Immediately. Right? So, CRT would say that Martin Luther King's statement of not judging someone by their color but by their integrity, right? They don't believe that at all. They would say that statement is racist. That's the world we're living in, folks. This is simply put in place, they would say, to marginalize people of color. There's no way that this theory cannot promote division and discord. And you're seeing it, folks. Uh, Epic levels of murder. Mass shootings every single day. We're seeing it across our land. If the church body imbibes in this, it will cause us to look at each other differently. Won't it? And if you look at them through the eyes of CRT, then you're not looking at them through the lens of the Bible. To CRT, people, to CRT people, adultism is even a form of oppression. You know what that means? Parents should not tell their kids what to do because that's oppression. They're not for adultism. Y'all see where this is headed. Do You see how bad this is. You are oppressing your kids by ruling over them and influencing them. So the goal is to undermine the family. The goal is to get your kids through the public school. That's the goal. So the goal is to undermine the family. The Bible is, is against oppression, but it's against real oppression, not made-up oppression. So CRT, critical race theory, is totally antithetical to the Word of God. They do not believe in the authority of the Bible. And as a matter of fact, think about this system. If you're white, there's no grace, there's no propitiation, and there's no way out. You can never be redeemed from it. You're part of a group that you cannot self-identify from. Social justice theory does not give us a way out. Group identity is a moral category to them. Who you are ethically is the group that you belong to. When I read my Bible, the gospel of Jesus Christ can transform anybody. Amen. Amen? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, if you are a poor, uneducated, homeless, white man living on the streets of Springfield, Missouri... You participate in promoting racism because you are a part of an oppressor group. Yet a black Harvard educated billionaire suffers oppression because she is part of an oppressed group. The difficulty is, can someone who was ever oppressed move out of the oppressed and become an oppressor? Well, that's what you're seeing with defund the police. Right? There was a professor out in California who berated a young white student up one side and down the other, right? She turned him in because he did this. Students saw it, and here's his response. Her white tears offended me. He's immediately off the hook, right? Y'all see where this is headed? It has nothing to do with red, ye- red yellow, black, or white. It has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with the social movement. It has everything to do with the demonic pushing of what this is really about. It doesn't see people of all colors as being made in the image of God and needing salvation. Last time I checked Paul said for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So some of you know Vodi Bauckham. I'm going to try to get Vodi to come to this church. He is a a critical race theory expert and he's also African-American. He grew up in Texas and if you would like to look at this more with CRT and intersectionality, there's no way I could do this in one setting. Go buy uh, Vodie's book called Fault Lines. Uh, he said this: If you are the oppressed group and you don't agree with social justice theory, meaning if you're actually African American and you don't agree with it, agree with it, then you've just simply internalized your oppression. If you accept the claims of Christ in Christianity, this is what Vodie says: Then you will have to deny critical race theory. He describes his work as a plea for churches to beware of destructive heresies. He notes that social justice movement is not just a pseudo-religion, but it is actually its own religious movement. The movement has its own cosmology, view of the world, its own saints, its own liturgy, and its own law. Those aspects are very subtle, which makes them attractive to Christians who are rightly concerned about topics such as race, justice, and equality. CRT, he says, is not aligned with Christianity. Their tenets fly in the face of the idea of the sufficiency of the Word of God. So the CRT teaches that the only way to know the truth is to elevate black, marginalized voices and listen to their stories. But here's the problem. People and their feelings become the arbiters of truth. And anyone who disagrees with those feelings is a racist or has actually internalized racism. CRT pushes what's called black liberation theology, which maintains that what needs to happen is people must be delivered from oppression. But here's what Votis says. The Bible teaches that we need a savior. We don't need black liberation theology. We need savior theology, right? So the only solution to racism, folks, is the gospel. A preacher friend of mine wrote a book recently, and here's what he said. Racism can be nullified by the grace of God. In the economy of God, those walls of division are gone. The things that divide the rest of this world should not be allowed to divide the church of God. Okay, I'm out of time. But here's what I want you to see from our text. In the midst of all of this, what should we do as believers? We ought to, we ought to strive for righteous living. You understand how important that is. Jesus lived this way. Listen to the text. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And what's that mean? Normally speaking, if you live a righteous life, people are not going to bother you. Think about this. Normally speaking, uh, if you read above that, it talks about run from evil. Folks, if you run from evil, you're probably not going to get in trouble. It says, do not allow your tongue to get the best of you. Folks, a lot of you will stay out of trouble if you wouldn't bump them gums all the time, right? If you're not gossiping, there's a good chance that you're not going to get in trouble with church people. Look, that's what some of that says. Listen, if you don't cheat on your wife, you might survive and not be killed by the man. You're probably not going to promote jealousy. You understand what I'm saying? Living uh, righteously usually means you're not going to be harmed. However, when you're seeking what is good, that's usually going to be the case, However, there are times when you suffer for what is right. And the Bible says this. It says it here. There's going to be times when your lifestyle and what you stand upon will in fact endanger you. And when that happens, you need to consider yourself blessed of God. Right? Because the Bible says that. So Peter's approach was much like James's. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So he is making you more like Jesus. And there's a future reward that's a whole lot better than worrying about what people say about you. okay? And then finally, uh, when you're seeking what is right, sanctify Jesus Christ in your hearts. Y'all see that there? In other words, when Jesus means more to you than anything in this world, then you're going to be doing okay. You set him apart as holy in your life. And when you, when you honor Jesus Christ above all things, then you won't fear what men can do to you. Right? You need to be more con- conscious about offending Jesus than you are about offending someone who would trumpet critical race theory. You need to be quick to give what the Word of God says. So think about it this way. It, it's kind of like a, a sandwich. The piece of bread on top says, don't be afraid of your adversaries, don't be troubled. The bottom piece is, be ready to make a case for your hope. But in order to make a case for your hope, you've got to be a hopeful person. You've got to be brimming with hope. The meat in the middle of the sandwich is the fact that you're reverencing the king in your life. When you reverence Jesus in your life, then you've got a brimming hope no matter what it looks like in Washington. Right? Last time I checked, they can't change history unless they put Jesus back in the tomb. And they can't. They never have been able to, so we need to brim with confidence. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Set him apart in your heart. Which leads to the next point. When you seek that which is righteous. You need to be ready to give that defense for our hope. Right? Always be ready to give. An apologia is the word. And it's not just for people like the preacher. What about your hope in Jesus? How how is it that you live among the people you work with. And people that you, you visit with. They're not... Peter's not asking for a preacher to give a defense of his hope. He's telling every believer to be willing to talk about the hope that is in them. So, be ready to give that defense. Give an explanation. Folks, if you're going to do that, you need to know what you believe. And you need to know why you believe it. I mean, let's let's, let's be honest. Yes, our Christian faith is a lot about faith, right? But it's also reasonable and logical and truth. That's never been able to be discarded or put away. Again, they could have done away with Christianity in about two seconds. Just show us the body of Jesus. But they can't, right? Because he's the resurrected Lord. And then finally, we need to maintain a good conscience. 16 and 17. Look how this reads. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will And suffering for doing evil. The conscience is that internal judge that witnesses to us. It enables us to either accuse our actions or approve them. And if we don't grow in spiritual knowledge and obedience, we will end up with a weak conscience. A good conscience fortifies us with courage because we know we're right with God. You know how important that is? Look, folks, when you're living a life of sin, you don't have confidence before God. When you're not living the truth of the word of God and you're not in fellowship with the Lord. But we need to live with a good conscience by developing godly character and developing godly confidence before the Lord. In conclusion, if you're asked today, why are you so hopeful in the face of all the court's rulings? What would you say? What would you say after about an hour of watching the media? CNN, MSNBC, throw in Fox 2. What would you say normally after watching all that? Whew! Man, my hope is sinking. But really, you understand that what these people were going through in Peter's day is much worse than what we're going through? I want to remind you of that. So what would you say? If our own hope doesn't spring up from something Christ did and said, then it's a mere sham. And you're not going to be able to give a case for anyone about the hope that is in us. But if we search out the promises of Christ, if we meditate on His character, right? He bore your sins in His body on the tree. When we meditate on those things, then we'll be best prepared for making a case for our hope. The primary activity in preparing to be a witness before this particular world is to keep our hearts happy in Jesus. Amen? Alright, to God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank You for Your Word. I feel like I did an injustice to the passage, but for the sake of time, Lord, remind us that In general, we should strive for righteous living so that we're not in trouble with anybody. But Lord, sometimes the way we live righteously will get us in trouble. And when it does, we need to sanctify our hearts in Christ. We need to think about honoring Jesus above the world. Speaking the truth, living the truth, not taking a back seat, not keeping a closed mouth, but to speak the truth in love. Do it in gentleness. We're not trying to slam people. We need to do it like Christ did, reviling not, but with gentleness. Share the truth of God's word. God, help us be willing to give a defense of the hope that is in us. By honoring Jesus Christ, and God, help us maintain a good conscience in this world. By living for you in the midst of difficult days. We're exiles. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 it, caused, it, causes us, it calls us exiles, pilgrims. Reminds me of that song, This is Not Our Home Anymore, We're Just Passing Through. Lord, we're exiles in this land. God, help us live in such a way that we will honor you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. I think an appropriate prayer today would be to pray for our children, right? To pray for our school leadership, right? To pray for the state of Missouri and the entire United States of America that God would send revival in our land, amen? That he would revive the church, number one, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. We can't expect lost people to act like saved people, okay? But Christians, this is the way we ought to behave. And let's pray that God would send a revival, uh, even in our own church. You say, well, how's that going to happen? Well, you can't worry about the person next to you. I'd start with yourself. When I was a kid, there was a song that they would sing in revival. It was called, What Kind of Church Would My Church Be? If every member were just like me. How many souls would be saved today if it all depended on what you said? How many times have you said you were a Christian and turned a deaf ear to a need? What kind of church would my church be if every Christian were just like me? Whew! I'd preach, wouldn't it? Who needs revival? I do. God may use you to be the spark to send revival to our church. Be obedient. Let's stand to our feet. Let's sing together.
0: Let's tell the Lord how desperately we need Him today, all right? Lord, I come, I confess,
1: bowing here, I find my
2: Rusty Hinn said this week, What if we looked at one another as hearts and souls that needed Jesus instead of looking at parameters of white, black, or any other nationality? Folks, the real issue is the gospel that saves sinners. We want our young people to look at other classmates as people who need to know Jesus. Not to see them in sections of how we can do this and that and the other, but every one of us needs the gospel. I remember growing up, yeah, I, I'm not a Missourian I'm from Georgia I grew up and I was one of two Af- uh, whites on my basketball team I played with African American brothers all the way through school and you know what my nickname was Phil the Baptist <laughs> and you know what did I get hurt about it not one bit because there was mutual respect between me and them we celebrated diversity Uh, That's what God's kingdom is about. It's about diversity. It's about the fact that God can cross any boundary and save people's souls and bring them together. No matter what nationality they are. Folks, that's what the gospel does. We need to celebrate that. Amen. Let's sing one more verse.
0: Where sin runs deep, your grace is more, where grace is found,
1: is where you are, where you are, and where you are.
2: Votie Bacham's Fault Lines, grab hold of that, read anything by Vody. Another guy named Tom Askell, who was over Founders Ministry, please read his stuff. He was one of the lone voices standing on the SBC floor. I heard him crying out, don't do this. But they wouldn't listen to him. And then uh, Christopher, is it Ruoff or is it Roof? R-U-O-F. He just did the uh, recent film on America Lost. He is the director and founder of Battleground, I think, or Battlefront, Christopher R-U-O-F. Now, i not how, sure how to explain it, I mean, pronounce it. Please, look at some of his stuff, It's cutting edge, good stuff, to help believers, okay? All right, I hope, thank you all for enduring that. I didn't really feel like no one glazed over like a donut, and I felt like you were listening. And, and I'm not a scholar on those things. Uh, hey, would you pray for us this week? We leave for Guatemala to see if the Lord God would use us in some way in a foreign country this week. So we leave Thursday. Come back the next Thursday. Brother Jeffrey, uh, your youth pastor, will be preaching Sunday. So all of the youth better show up for his sermon, right? All right. So God bless you. Pray for our group. We have 30 that will leave for Guatemala. And just pray that God's will will be accomplished. All right. God bless you. Sing, High King of Heaven.
1: High King of Heaven my victory